Hi, I'm Lisa Morton, founder of Roland Dransville PR, and this is our We Built This City podcast. This podcast is made of the conversations of the Mancunians born, bred and adopted that put the heart into modern Manchester. We're a city that literally rebuilt itself after the IRA bomb exploded in Manchester city centre in 1996. While the city continues to grow brick by brick, we know that what makes it great are the people that come together day in and day out. Like my guest, Rose Marley. You know, it's less about the bricks and mortar, Manchester. It's more about the people for me. Rose Marley is a born and bred, award-winning Mancunian social entrepreneur who is committed to increasing the opportunities available for all young people across Greater Manchester. She is founder and director of Rose Marley Management and CEO of the award-winning social enterprise Sharp Futures, based at the Sharp Project in Newton Heath. Rose is also behind Manchester Together in One Voice, which last week saw people across the whole of Greater Manchester join together in a safe distance doorstep sing-along to some of Manchester's most iconic inspired anthems. Rose, thank you so much for joining me on We Built This City. You've had a pretty busy and amazing week, which we're going to talk about later, but thanks for taking the time out today to chat to me. Thank you for having me. So what was it about the line, if I hadn't seen such riches, I could live with being poor from Sit Down by James that made you realise you were going to be a social entrepreneur? So that line to me is all about inequality and social inequality particularly and the song and the band it represents which is Manchester which was a big part of my youth growing up uh, resulted in me working in the music industry and I've been working in the music industry for about 10 years and it was only really because of Manchester I was given that opportunity because there was a moment in time when this accent this Mancunian accent had a value in the media and entertainment business and I don't believe had Manchester not happened that I would have been able to break into the creative industries and actually whilst working in the music industry I realized that people that had the top jobs in particular at the time all kind of went to the same school and kind of came from the same areas and it was all about the connection so it was a real kind of social mobility moment for me and I know it's a cliche but I did get pregnant and was having my first child and I was doing the whole what am I doing with my life what kind of world am I bringing this child into and that song by James came on the radio and I decided that I'd put my talents and skills and all the knowledge I'd garnered about how entertainment business works and how brands work into a more positive and social impact. That's brilliant. So what is a social entrepreneur? So, well, a social enterprise is a business that it has what's called the double bottom line. So every business has to be concerned about the finances and the bottom line only refers to you having more money coming in than going out Um, and it's very similar on the double bottom line which is about the social impact and it's about measuring the impact and understanding the impact of what your business is doing on the community it's set out to serve and in the case of my social enterprise Sharp Futures that's young talented diverse uh, individuals trying to get into the creative industries so as a social entrepreneur you work in businesses that are concerned with a a greater impact other than profit so you've got to make profit twice basically 
Yeah, there's a, you've got to make profit twice, you've got to keep your doors open, you've got to be financially sustainable, but then you've also got to consider the community you've set out to serve, which is really interesting in a board meeting because they grapple with each other, those two uh, principles. Sometimes what's better financially is not at all what would be better socially. So you have to have a board that has a good mix of kind of people with a strong financial remit and a strong social remit. But obviously the profits around uh, what you're doing with people's lives is very often a lot more rewarding than the financial profit. So I've heard you say that business for good is good for business. Is that what you're alluding to there? Yeah, so in the Companies Act, there is actually a, a definition of what a company director's fiduciary duty is, which is to make profit for the shareholders. But actually, traditional businesses who have that remit are also beginning to really take on board the fact that um, if you are a good employer, if you provide good products and services, look after the environment that you operate in, that is well received, not only by your staff for retentions and recruitment and for your customers as well. And particularly with the coronavirus pandemic, more so that need to kind of create good through business is a, is a growing momentum. And particularly, actually, millennials and Generation Z even more so, really look for those intrinsic values in a business. You know, a lot of businesses are complaining about high turnover of young people, but young people have got, they've been told that they're not going to have a job for life, um, for the whole lives. So they're not looking for one. So if they're working somewhere and they don't wholly and truly believe in what the company's doing and why, they'll just leave. So for all sorts of reasons, this growing momentum around thinking about the, the wider impact on society has become a significant momentum already. But with coronavirus, a lot of the businesses that have been helping out in all sorts of ways are going to do really well actually in the future because it's well appreciated by their customers. Absolutely. So Chris Brindley, who was on the podcast a few weeks ago, said that people who create value in the coronavirus will be remembered and people and brands who don't create value in the coronavirus period will also be remembered. And I think that's so true. It's so evident with many, many organisations now doing some just incredibly great stuff. Most definitely. And I've just been appointed as the chair of the Social Enterprise Advisory Group for Greater Manchester and the task that we've got over the next 18 months is to look at the conditions for social enterprises to flourish and grow within Greater Manchester. Um, often process can slow things down and so can technicalities around the way that processes are defined and one of the things that always strikes me about the industrial revolution starting in the UK, you know, the reason the industrial revolution started in the UK was the first place in Europe to remove censorship of ideas. So, you know, prior to, to that being removed, if you had an idea, you had to get it cleared by the government and by state church before you could progress an idea can you imagine no. um, so people couldn't invent things and that's why Galileo was always getting arrested for coming up with ideas across Europe um, and so I feel like we've got the opportunity in Greater Manchester at the moment if we can unlock some of the ways to ensure social enterprises flourish and grow um, and allow more businesses to be promoted and supported because they are making a wider impact in things like employment and the environment what a great what a great place this could be to start a new business.
Totally. Clint Boone said as well on, on the podcast that he did with us that if we all just look after our own corner of the world, the world's going to be a better place. And I really feel that Greater Manchester is one of the places that's really doing that. So uh, you're CEO of the Sharp Project and then you founded Sharp Futures in 2012, which is an award-winning social enterprise supporting diverse young people in the creative and digital tech sectors. What did you think young people of Manchester were missing out on? So I was founding COO of the Sharp Projects and Space Studios on behalf of Manchester City Council, but I had already started my first social enterprise, which was called Motive, actually, with the birth of my son. And what we were doing was creating experiences and opportunities for young people, particularly in North Manchester, that had lack of aspiration. In fact, not a lack of aspiration, either a too high aspiration to want to be, you know, always in Manchester, you know, a footballer or a musician. And if you couldn't be those things, limited aspiration for a more sort of realistic career opportunity that's achievable because it's so hard to be the top of any of those games. So I was very aware we'd worked with brands um, in secondary schools like Nando's and the Enemy, and in primary schools it was Top Trumps and Lego and Crayola and we were providing rewards for improved attendance, excellent attendance, making an effort. There's a psychology called nudge psychology and it's about not saying you should be doing this, you should be doing that, you're just saying do you want this, do you want that? Have you tried this? Have you tried that? And very much um, when we started Motive, that's what we were doing. And the attendance in Manchester went through the roof, actually, when we were doing our campaigns. So Sharp Futures was based on the opportunity I was given through Manchester. How can we create that? Once the Sharp project was up and running, how can we make sure it's meaningful to the people that live around it and buy it and in the whole of uh, greater Manchester so that it doesn't become something that is uh, it's in Newton Heath you know it needs, needs to have Newton Heath and half a head kids running the desk which it does mm. um, and that wouldn't be your first port of call actually because if you're talking customer services you know a very polished you know young woman from Bramall might be your first choice if you weren't pushing those drivers to go no no or Manchester Council in particular pushing those drivers to say have you got the local young people working in this place? So Sharp Futures uh, was born out of that and we developed a system called Pod People on Demand because one of the things with the creative industries in particular is it's very based around freelance working and that's where your big social mobility problem comes because you know, the general uh, working class kid like me wouldn't have a cushion of somewhere to live and somewhere to stay in between work. And we talk a lot now about the gig economy, but that comes out of the creative industries. You know, you're as good as your last gig. You get a gig, you might be editing on something for six weeks and then get a three-month job and then another job. And so by default, people who are more affluent tended to work in those industries because it's really hard to sustain these sort of patchy offers if you haven't got money otherwise. So part people on demand is like freelancing, but on payroll, because um, that's the other barrier, you know, to say to an 18-year-old from Moston, yeah, you can work in uh, TV. What you need to do is get yourself a lawyer, an accountant, and, uh, you know, it's just not that achievable. So with POD, the young people are on payroll, we look after the credit 
hospital, the holiday pay, and get them all the gigs. But they can do loads of other work in between. They can be full-time, they can be apprentices, they can work at Costa Coffee or at uh, Manchester City or Manchester United in between. And it allows them to build up paid work experience in what they want to do, which can be television, running, social media, graphic design, um, all sorts of opportunities in creative digital. Have you got any success stories that you're proud of? Oh, so many, so many. And it's really cyclical. You know, we have young people who come on school tours who then end up being apprentices with Sharp Futures who go on to work for organisations like Cisco. I'm going to cite our very first example, Martin, who was a chap from Newton Heath who came on the very first ever school tour of the Sharp Project and went on to do a degree because he was inspired about the idea of working in film and TV, which had never crossed his mind prior to that tour, actually. And now he works for the mob films and he shoots video. He was in Abu Dhabi last week when I tried to get hold of him shooting for, uh, I think it was Manchester City actually. But they, um, there's, there's so many, there's so many, so many incredible stories, which are always really why running a social enterprise for all its hard work and efforts is worthwhile. I think that's incredible, really, because it's also showing young people that you have got to hustle. It's not things aren't don't go in straight lines. I sometimes think that there's an expectation, isn't it? Because we get everything so quickly these days in society that when I look back to your career, my career, you just had to hustle to get into those opportunities. Yeah, when we have tours of the Sharp Project, we talk about being a Mancunian and one of the terms that might be used as a Mancunian is to be called a blagger. And that can often be used in a derogatory way. But actually, you know, blagging is like an, an incredible skill. And um, <laughs> it means you've got somebody to do something they didn't want to do, or you've got something for free. And actually, if you lived in Westminster, it'd be called high-level negotiation. But in Manchester, it's blagging. And, you know, that's a really, really impressive skill. If you're loving We Built This City, please could you take the time to leave a five-star review on your podcast platform? Thank you. Is there an opportunity for you now with COVID in terms of businesses having to have furloughed teams and needing immediate fast support in specialist areas? Yes, so we've got, we're working with a major organisation to take their brand digital, for example. And because we work with so many young people who are adaptable and agile, it's really easy to do. You know, when we did go into lockdown, it was less than a couple of hours before all of our team we're working remotely because everybody just knows how to do that and you know you can see uh, and I know we're on a podcast here but in my zoom in the background you know there's all sorts of pictures going on behind me that was the first time I turned it on the whole team had already worked out how to use everything <laughs> there was a crib sheet telling you what to do and um, so it's so refreshing and rewarding working with sort of people who are hungry for digital and creative ideas and it keeps you energized Completely. And, and when I was getting into my career, people paid for grey hair, whereas because they had all the wisdom, whereas now everyone wants the, the really young ones that know what they're doing. Yeah. And I think that's really important that we um, allow our young people to have those voices because there is a real difference in generations at the moment. And like I say Gen Z that are coming through have got a totally different expectation and outlook on life. And actually, 
the gap between education and work is rowing, sadly. And actually, a lot of the time with young people, what we're doing is teaching them how to be in work on a daily basis, full stop. It's not about the skills they've got. It's about their ability to do things like critical thinking and working in teams and projects are the things that the skills that employers need that our education system isn't giving them at the moment. You talk about finding opportunities in a crisis though how does that tie into the Build Back Better campaign being led by Andy? The Social Enterprise Advisory Group is working on this at the moment because, you know, that's what a social entrepreneur does at its best. You know, as much as there are challenges, there are always opportunities as well. So, like I said, you know, as much as Sharp Futures lost all its kind of event work recently, we've got loads more digital work and understanding how you can uh, achieve that. Um, So I think in Build Back Better, there's been a lot of learning and and a big thing for me has been about community and the importance of community and locality and not throwing it all away, not just as all returning to work and forgetting how important your neighbours became and how important things like the sports club, even though they, they weren't operating, you know, the amount of people that got value from those communities, community led organisations and businesses are my real passion and more so than ever with Build Back Better. So yeah, we'll be making sure that there's a voice from, from those community led businesses in the Build Back Better campaign. And Andy said that Build Back Better is also supporting a better equality across Greater Manchester. That must be something that really resonates with you. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, yeah, I am a middle child so nothing's ever fair (laughs) ever (laughs) um sometimes I wonder about how much influence that has had on (laughs) my need for things to be fair and equal but yeah the uh I, I just see it all the time I grew up in North Manchester and I've got a lot of friends in Moston and Blakely and now I live in South Manchester and I have a lot of friends in Charlton and Didsbury and through the pandemic their lives have been entirely different you know a lot of my more middle class friends have been sat on Zoom conferences at home you know um, trying their best with their kids but actually you know still having all the same problems that we've all got with our teenagers at the moment that they lost etc but actually my friends from North Manchester that are having to leave the house earlier because the public transport isn't running properly to go to jobs like the bakery in the supermarket or to the hospital where they're working and then they're having to leave their teenagers on their own with a workbook that isn't necessarily being adhered to and coming home later uh, and the kids have been either at home or at the park all day. And then we get Greater Manchester Police contacting us through our past saying, can you help? The kids are all on the park. Well, no surprises. That's in the more deprived wards that that's happening because all, all the parents that are working are, are key workers and they're not able to be there. So like I say, I, I don't feel like I've been here for my children, but I've been in the same house as them and I've been able to make sure that they're okay. So yeah, there's a real, you know, it's not been a leveler. Coronavirus has not been a leveler. It will create a, a bigger divide than ever socially. Mm. And just going back to our past, and one of the things that's behind that was to help support future prosperity in Greater Manchester. Is that by giving kids better access? So obviously not just travel, but those other opportunities that they wouldn't normally have. 
Yes, so this was always Andy Burnham's vision um, and he had a not dissimilar experience to me whereas mine was more in the University of uh, Life, uh, EMI Records and places like that um, and he had the same experience by going to Cambridge and then thinking, wow, that's it, you know, I've made it, I've, I've got myself into Cambridge so that's it now, job done, you know, I'll have a job for life and it'll be great and then came back home to Greater Manchester and realised that actually the degree isn't the point, it was who you know is the point. So we kind of are similar ages and had similar experiences. And so Andy's vision always with our past was that people, you know, in the outer reaches of Rochdale, and Andy started out on the Middleton Guardian actually in, in Rochdale, yeah. so we'll have seen this, or in places like, you know, Garton or in areas of Tameside like maybe Harton Green you know do the within turn within short you know do those young people come into town and feel it's for them and actually my experience is that when young people do come into town if they do because in within Shaw they don't come into town they don't go to the Trafford Centre a lot of the young people you know it's referred to as a, as a 10 minute zone but even when they do come into town um I've heard young people explain to me that it's Market Street, you know, they don't go to Albert Square, for example, that's not their part of town. Um, so yeah, so, so Andy's vision was like, if you go somewhere, you know, a couple of times, you feel like you can go again on your own. So let's find ways to get those young people to go to the Bridgewater Hall, for example. And I'm absolutely over the moon with our past that literally, the first thing, I was really, really surprised, the first thing that was sold out uh, well, it never got sold out because they released more tickets, but it was the Halley concerts at the Bridgewater Hall and people going to see an orchestra for the first time. And with our pass, we made it that no matter, you plus one didn't have to be an our pass holder. So people were taking the grannies to uh, the theatre and the dads to the football. Um, and we were getting messages off dads saying, oh, I've never been able to afford to take them to Manchester United, but now for £5 for a game, you know, they were able to do that. So without a doubt, the vision was always to broaden your experience and your breadth of experience. Um, again, I got through that through music growing up because when I was growing up, um, Manchester City Council paid for every single person that wanted to, to have any music lesson whatsoever on Manchester Council for free. I really, really benefited from that in lots of ways, but not least, every year we had to go and perform at the Royal Northern College of Music, which was a real massive big deal. And I felt so out of my depth being in somewhere like the Royal Northern. But then I'd see all these like girls from like, you know, Didsbury and Bramall and you know, with the tassels. Do you remember those skirts with the tassels at the end that everyone used to wear? And uh, <laughs> we didn't have those in, on our, in our side of town. I was just wondering where you could get them from. Um, and then I discovered Affleck Palace. That was where you yes. got them from. You know, uh, so it was like music does, you know, propel you into worlds that you wouldn't get into. Otherwise, going to gigs, spending time with music, learning music, any ways of music. So, yeah, Andy's vision with our past to create just lots of opportunity for young people to go do stuff is really really impactful in terms of what they believe they can do and would want to do um and it's obviously been difficult with the pandemic to do much but we've got so many plans for when we're able to come back up with our past it's very exciting it's just fantastic that i was speaking to Bryony shanahan at the royal exchange and obviously 
they have students and young people in there and that's so true those people don't understand that that place is theirs too we work with an amazing charity called debate mate and they put debating skills into schools in areas of high social deprivation but also they take those debating students into places like the Whitworth Art Gallery or at Tate in London and it helps with aspiration doesn't it if you can see it you can be it Music's obviously a very tough industry and you were in it for, for being very young. What did it teach you? It taught me. I mean, I was a music manager, which gave me a real insight um, into everything. So to be a manager, you need to understand records at the time, streaming and digital mm. now, um, publishing, merchandising, live, people management, creative teams. You have to understand absolutely everything as a music manager to be able to manage artists. So I, I learned a lot about the, the, the way uh, the music industry works, but as well, um, I had the great honour, I guess you would say now, of working with uh, Tony Wilson for In The City with Yvette Lidsey for a long time. And what I learned there was um, just a real can-do attitude, actually. I think, I think out of everything, what the music industry taught me is that you can do it not about bits of paper that tell you you can do it <laughs> it's about a mindset and a belief and building up networks of people around you that can enable you to flourish and to create projects and to create uh, beautiful moments uh, through music and art and how to collaborate and get the best out of teams and you've certainly done that this last week haven't you so obviously Mancunians turn to music when we're in pain or when we need some solidarity and we usually do that in great big crowds of people and so you've been behind Manchester together in one voice on two very significant occasions so 2018 in remembrance of the 22 people who tragically lost their lives at the arena how did you get 3,000 singers from choirs across the region to sing in Albert Square at that, on that day? You know that was not the hard bit at all <laughs> um, with Manchester together at the time, I was managing Tony Walsh and the whole thing had come about because Tony was being inundated with requests for the first year of the, the arena anniversary. And we were trying to work out what to do. And I knew it would be really, really hard for Tony, actually, because he knew a lot of the families by then. Mm. Um, so we decided that we'd do whatever was the official thing. So um, I rang the arena and I rang Manchester Council to find out what the official plans were. And it was probably in about the January and nobody was sure what to do or how to do. And I just came up with the idea because we'd done Ariana Grande's um, One Love concert. That was such a stunningly impressive moment that absolute props to Simon Moran for pulling that off in, in the time scales that he did it. But my concern about the, the arena, and not for the families, because there was going to be a beautiful memorial at the cathedral. It was about it was about the people of Manchester also feeling that they wanted to come together and how we did that. And I was really concerned that it'd be some sort of watered down, you know, Christmas light switch on if we weren't careful, you know, with different um, celebrities being involved. And I just wanted to make it about the people. So I just kept saying, let's sing. Why don't we just sing? Let's sing. 
um, and I had been to a singing event at the arena and found it very powerful. Um, and the arena, you know, agreed, but wanted to close that evening because, you know, obviously they were victims and they wanted to give their staff the, the time off. Um, so yeah, so I just kept saying, well, why don't we just sing? Why don't we just all get in Albert Square and sing? And that eventually became Manchester together. Um, and in terms of how do we get those choirs, we put one, we put one press call out and said we, we were looking for choirs to come together and sing with us. And within two days, 80 choirs had submitted. Uh, within two days and I remember calling the press office and saying don't do any more press on the choirs <laughs> we can't we no can't more. fit any more choirs we can't fit any more choirs on the stage and there's a brilliant uh, unsung hero of Manchester called Mike Parrott I'm going to call it out for Mike who is uh, the licensing uh, the licensor for Albert Square and all sorts of places and Mike and I had discussed the fact that we didn't want to say no to anybody so it just felt inappropriate to get a, an email saying, dear, whatever choir, you've not been selected on this occasion. You know, that, that was wrong. So we were very much of the mind that if anybody wanted to sing, that they would be able to. So I remember presenting this to, because um, oh, Mike Parrott, like I said, was just saying, it's all right, we'll just keep moving the barriers forward. It'll be fine. We'll just... <laughs> We'll just make enough room, it'll be fine, it'll be fine. So I remember presenting this to Sir Richard Lees and Councillor Sue Murphy, who was so sadly passed away mm -hmm. recently, and she was absolutely brilliant uh, throughout that whole event in terms of support and understanding what the people of Manchester needed and helping us to enable that. And I remember doing this meeting where we have to go through how we'd pick the choirs, because uh, we knew everyone was going to sing together in the end at the finale, the last four songs, everyone had sung together, but there was going to be an hour's worth of choirs leading up to that. How did we pick the choirs? How did we pick the songs? And what the general plan was? And I remember saying, okay, so we base this on the premise that we haven't said no to anybody. If anybody said they want to sing with us, we've said yes. And so Richard and Sue said, absolutely correct response. That's brilliant. Okay, so how many people have we got in the finale? And I remember saying, 3,200. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, it was just the most brilliant moment from, from Manchester because it was just like, yeah, let's just find a way to do this. And thank goodness it was sunny because what we hadn't thought about the logistics of all of that was where were they all? Well, we, what kind of green room were we putting them all in, you know, like before they went on? We were ringing every venue in the nearby area saying, we've got these choirs, can we put these choirs? Can, can we just come to your place for a bit while we get them all organised? And everyone was stunningly brilliant on, on, on that day. And the sun shone and it was a real moment. And we all did come together in, in music and, and, and song. And it was a really special moment. So when we hit the pandemic, the amount of messages I was getting of people saying, oh, when we come out of lockdown, we need to get together and sing again. And I was thinking that's going to be ages away because, you know, obviously we've got the pandemic, but also, you know, Albert Square's being renovated and, you know, to do that again is just going to be so far away. Um, and Dan McDwyer, the uh, musical yeah. director of Together in One Voice, just kept texting me, was hounding me, come on, find a way, come on, Rose, you can do this, find a way. So I was thinking, well, the only way we could safely do it is if people stay on their own doorsteps. So I started looking into it, like, how could we amplify the streets? How could we capture it all? And came up with the idea of, of, of the drones. Um, and again, made a couple of phone calls and very quickly 
we've got lots of yeses from Manchester City Council. The response I got was, this is brilliant, but you can't have any money. You can't have any resource. You can't distract our offices in any way whatsoever because we've got a really important pandemic to deal with. Mm-hmm. And if you come back in three weeks with a plan that's done that, then we'll, we'll, we'll carry on, uh, which we did. And the co-op came in so to pay for the drones. And Manchester International Festival were absolutely brilliant, putting in all the tech support. And then we went to um, uh, Andy Burnham, who went to the police for us and said, are we all okay with this? And he gave us a good steer on when the right time to do it would be. And then we went to the artists and said, we, we, we want to sing, we want to use your songs, will you introduce them? And again, the high class problem we had was the artists that were like what do you mean you want me to appear but you're not using my song <laughs> sing my song <laughs> um not for ego but because the idea of you know you know the potential of you know thousands and thousands of people across you know 500 square miles of greater manchester all singing your song um, and i got a text on the day actually of tom walker's mum <laughs> tom walker's mum texted me in, she said, I'm in absolute tears watching all these people sing my boy's song. What a moment, you know? Well, my daughter sang Tom Walker's song and she adores and we, sh- we actually got a signed platinum album in our house that we got from an auction for charity. And she appeared on your video and she Yay. is made up and it's just so wonderful. I, I actually cried. So were those artists all f- kind of friends of yours? Are they relationships you built up in your career? Yeah, the artists and the managers and the promoters. And um, you see, with, with, with Manchester Together, the songs were dead obvious. We had to do Don't Look Back in Anger. We had to do Ariana Grande. We had to do uh, One Day Like This and Never Forget. They were just obvious. The songs were just dead obvious mm. straight away. What are the songs that we all need to sing together right now? And they were there. With uh, Together in One Voice, it was less obvious what songs we'd want to do. Search for the Hero, you know, when we decided that we were going to, you know, people were used to coming out on their doorsteps on a Thursday. So Search for a Hero, uh, yes, new Mike Pickering back in the day. I hadn't spoke to him for 30 years. It's always funny, you know, when you randomly ring people and, and, and when you're trying to put things on like this, this quicker and you've got like an hour to make seven yeah. calls and you're like hi how are you anyway what would you do anyway what i need is this and it feels really rude you know like that well sorry i'm not talking to years what i need off you like right now is lacking <laughs> what are those kind of calls and it was um a, a tremendous woman actually caroline ellery who's the head of a&r for universal music publishing and actually caroline is a, a mancunian and she her career started out in in manchester within the city was her, you know she signed coldplay in the city and let's say she now heads up the A&R for Universal Music Publishing and Caroline was brilliant in helping me get to some of the artists and getting all the music played in particular um, another song that was that was standout for me was James Sit Down mm-hmm. for all the reasons that this event that we put together using a social enterprise model you know it wasn't a charity event we didn't ask people to donate now we made, we made the whole thing was paid for it was a brilliant community-based experience I was keen to include James Sit Down but also when we did the original Manchester together at Albert Square, that was one of the songs that everybody, because when choirs submitted and we asked which songs, everybody wanted to do James Sit Down. But again, Mike Parrott, our event director at Manchester Council, was like, no, no, it'll be packed. You know, we're not doing, no, we're not all sitting down. It'll be a nightmare. No, we're, just, no, we're not doing that song. 
So we wanted to, and again, it was very much uh, John McGrath at Manchester International Festival was very keen for us not to be the same old Manchester songs and same old Manchester music story about the Hacienda and about, you know, all those big bands that made it. So Tom Walker being a brilliant example of someone who's putting it right now. And the dancing in the street very much came out. We wanted to demonstrate that there was a... The influence of, you know, um, places like Detroit on Manchester's music scene and a way to kind of make a nod as well to all those stunning female vocalists because we knew it was going to be choir-led so we couldn't, you know, uh, we did invite Denise Johnson to speak but you've got people like Rowetta and Denise and Mm -hmm. Diane Charlemagne and Jenna G and all these incredible female um, artists. We wanted to be able to create a nod to them Um, and then when it came to Emily Sandy, that was very much from Dan McDwyer because one of the big things as well as community was about what singing does for your mental health and Dan had started the Be Vocal Mental Health Choir and they had sang with Emily Sunday so she's a northerner so she adopted Mank for the evening mm. um but it was the words as well in you are not alone you know are you sick and tired of being lied to is how it opens it was just like whoa this song is just so perfect and such a beautiful song for the choirs to sing um, so yes, it was all kind of very quickly came together, and then we, then as well we had to some some songs were a bit more difficult to clear because they've got different publishers and things like that. So uh, we managed to get everything we wanted though in the timescales that we got it, and uh, yeah, it was um, a bit nail biting in quite a lot of places. But we did it. We pulled it off. It's so amazing. And so for anybody that's not seen it yet, you can go to Manchester International Festival, can't you? You can watch it there. And are you yeah. going to be putting some more um, stuff out on social? Was that the plan? Yes. Next week We've got, so? If you go to togethermcr.com, you can see it on there. And we've got so many videos. I mean, you're saying you're laughing, you're crying. Gosh, you wanted to see the Dropbox, like, because <laughs> the other thing is, we gave people till nine o'clock the next morning, this video yes. is still coming in now. Oh, it was absolutely incredible. I've watched it a few times and I've cried every time. And um, you think <laughs> it's going to be an annual event? Can we not keep it? I don't know. I keep thinking that. I do think, you know, you see this event, you know, the legacy, you know, it does come out of the uh, arena attack. And for me, the greatest legacy would be is to gift music to our young people. Um, and in the opening track, Shine, we're particularly focused on, on young people. If it was something that we could do that could uh, create income to put creativity and music into our schools for free, that would be my driving motivator because the idea of doing it again for me, you know, would be about does it mean that schools will put choirs together for it? Does it mean... The, the local running club will have a bit of a sing-song at the end of the night because it'll make you feel great. And that's what that's what would motivate me to, to want to, to do it. This is the We Built the City podcast, celebrating the Mancunians that built and continue to build this amazing city. We talk about purposeful relationships at Roland Ransfield. It's clear that you've built so many of those that have been invaluable for the work that you've done. Why do you think it's so important to build and maintain those? Because in knowledge networks, so we've been through sort of the IT phase of the revolution and industry 4.0 is based on, on knowledge and knowledge-based businesses. And to operate as a service-led uh, organisation uh, that is inherently dependent on knowledge, what I've learned over the years is that if you share your knowledge, people will share their knowledge 
but I mean, you know, when <laughs> talking about together in one voice on the Saturday night, I pulled all the music. It wasn't right. It was nowhere near right. And everyone was going, what do you mean? We've got that. I was just like, no, it's, it's not right. I don't know how to fix it. And fortunately, I am married to a music producer. So that was helpful. Uh, he did us a whole load of crib notes. But actually, I rang the son of Simply Red's manager, who now works with Guy Chambers, who works with Robbie Williams et al. In, in, in London a lot. And we rang George, 80 Hertz and the Sharp Project. And we went, right, okay, we've got a bit of a problem here. This is... And the reason it wasn't right, by the way, is no reflection on the musicians or the choirs. It was a reflection on trying to record it all remotely and distance, like through Zoom. We were recording mm. the choirs through Zoom. I remember ringing the sound engineer and saying, so, there'll be about 100 voices and they're all coming off Zoom and FaceTime. And it, it was just, at first he was like, mm, yeah, Rose, just, just stop it, you know. I was like, I'll, you know. I'll uh, please help me, you know, like, because like I've helped your dad in the past and your dad's helped me. And it's like, you know, it was a little bit like leaning on people like that um, in a good way. Uh, but yeah, you know, and let's say Dan was so reliant on his people, his engineers, there's a string arranger called Pete Whitfield, who's stunningly good, who's renowned throughout the world for his, his string arrangements. Again, he just came together. Um, so yeah, so, so when you get those calls going, can you help, can you help, can you help? But I get those calls. I literally get those calls every day. I got like three yesterday on social media. I need this, I need that. Can you help me with this? Can you introduce me to those people? And I just always introduce people. I will always give out my knowledge. I will always share my knowledge. It doesn't always work out. You know, some people take your knowledge as their own. You know, social enterprises are businesses, so they are competitive. So, you know, you have to be careful about what you're sharing but um like i say I, I generally tend to share because i believe that if you do that it comes back to you and i just recommend that kind of collaborative approach to anybody in industry 4.0 because you know robots and don't have those features what are we good at what are what are humans good at creativity you know negotiation knowledge sharing are all the things that i highly recommend for any business going forward could not agree more and there the relationships now it doesn't matter at the moment particularly it doesn't matter how much money you've got or how many cars you've got what matters is what relationships you've got because that's what's important to us now isn't it completely it's it's brought it home hasn't it to to everybody really how important our relationships are so manchester born and bred um you're primary school in blakely and then senior school in royton what values did you learn growing up in manchester I had a very good experience of growing up in Manchester, very entrepreneurial. I'd say the two things would be the entrepreneurial and the civic duty. I think that's those two things have combined to result in becoming a social entrepreneur. So in terms of entrepreneurial, I grew up in a family-based funeral service in Blakely. Wow. <laughs> so that was interesting. Yeah. At the time, growing up as a kid, it was completely normal to me that you're at your grand's house and there's a dead body in the next room. That was just like normal. And um, looking back, why I wasn't called, Mort called Morticia at school, because I get dropped off in the hearse sometimes <laughs> when it was snowing and things. Um, but what, what I actually meant was I, I learned customer services really early on. So everything from if you answered my grandma's phone, you had to answer it as the funeral service through to, you know, it was a funeral service. People turned up day and night in major distress. And if and I, I used to go to my grand every night in White Moss, this is. After school, I walked to my grand with my brother. And if somebody turned up and uh, they were grieving, like my grand's front room would be where, you know, they'd conduct a lot of the business. Um, and we'd have to hide behind the sofa, you know, and not make any noise. 
for like an hour or something. <laughs> but we'd learn, we'd learn compassion and we'd learn customer service and we'd learn really tricky, you know, how do you ask for someone for money in that situation? So I think I got loads of entrepreneurial skills from that. My grand was like, I mean, literally as my grand was getting older, she'd go, if she went in hospital for an eight month, she'd take all the business cards with her and leave them on the end of people's beds. She was just like, <laughs> always looking for sale. Another blogger. Um, <laughs> so I learned loads and loads growing up in a family business but as well then when Manchester sort of hit that was a big defining um uh, experience of Manchester how entrepreneurial everybody was and everybody was selling stuff making stuff doing stuff blagging I started promoting actually at the age of 14 I put my first gig on at St John Bosco's Church Hall then we went to the Hacienda after it <laughs> Um, but Those I remember are the 14 year olds. <laughs> but so I don't know, so actually, it was the second one because I was 15 when I went to Hacienda. The first one, I didn't go to the Hacienda after it, but some of the, the, the people that went to the gig did. And uh, I remember convincing the priest to let us have the church hall for this, you know, rave in actual fact. <laughs> Um, and uh, we based it all on the fact that we were raising money for um, children in Africa, <laughs> which we did. But my mum and dad were the bouncers, you know, people <laughs> you're being sick in the toilets and all that stuff. But yeah, very, very entrepreneurial and always, always looking to hustle like you, you, Lisa, and, and making that money. So that was the entrepreneurial stuff. And then the, the civic stuff. I was surprised how many people didn't know about the bee. Um because I was brought up, you know, believing in the B. Yeah. Uh, you know, in my 70s education, I remember winning a competition uh, for a colouring competition for litter, litter um, improvement across the city. And I got this pen that had a B on the end of it that was so cool. I loved it. <laughs> Um, and I remember also I entered a, a story writing competition and uh, along with lots of other, uh, it was what would what is year six now, year six students across Great Manchester, we all got invited to Manchester Town Hall to meet the Lord Mayor and the Lord Mayor took us around uh, the Great Hall and showed us all the, um, the, the, the pictures. Um, and I remember him sitting down with us afterwards and he said, okay, so what will you do for Manchester? You know, and he said, I expect you to do the best you can for Manchester. So that civic duty then followed on by, you know, books by like Manchester lad or Tony Wilson. Again, you know, he would describe what he did as his civic duty. Mm. You know, I remember Elliot Rashman, uh, Simply Red's manager, when he took on Sean Ryder, he described it as his civic duty to <laughs> Manchester. Um, so, yeah, so uh, enterprise meets kind of civic duty and you get a, a natural social entrepreneur in the mix, I think. We Built This City is a podcast from Roland Dransfield PR. Obviously, we have our Roland Dransfield way, which is we've got a number of values that are important to us. Do any of our values align with yours? Yes, remind me the one about the tree because I've not got it in yes. front. So plant trees you'll never see. Yeah, that that is the one that that resonates with me because the impact now. I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish I could tell my grandma how much she taught me. For example, you know, all my grandmas actually. I strongly believe. You see, I I feel sometimes I feel like um, with social enterprise in particular, like the world's not quite ready for it yet. Sometimes feel like I'm beating a drum. People sometimes move away from me because <laughs> I'm beating that drum again. Mm. I'm very confident in knowing that when I'm gone, that movement will be growing and growing. And I truly believe that we will move to a place where, you know, all business is 
targeted to be more purposeful than profit alone. And actually, if I didn't believe that what I was doing now was going to have a lasting impact on the world, I, I wouldn't be doing it. Absolutely. Do you think you'd ever leave Manchester Rose? I did spend a lot of time in London. So I used to do three days a week in London and, uh, you know, used to put on events at, you know, New York or across Europe. It's not that I wouldn't leave Manchester. It's just that my communities are here. And like I say, I talk about communities a lot. So, you know, when I go and visit friends who, you know, have emigrated and they have a beautiful, beautiful life, they always say the same thing to me, but I've got no one to share it with in the same way. So I think there's, there's that. But yeah, I think that when 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 times are tough and you know i have personal circumstances that make life quite challenging we live with chronic illness we're shielding at the moment in our house and i need those people around me so you know it's less about the bricks and mortar manchester it's more about the people for me right so before you go quick fire favorite pub or club in manchester well, it's closed down now, but it has to be the boardwalk. Friday nights at the boardwalk. Dave Hurtlin, where I cut my teeth, where I live my youth. Favourite Manchester expression? Nice one. <laughs> yes. You know, I have another one, but I think it's only a North Manchester expression. Have you ever heard of this? Um, have you checked your Newtons? Yeah, what, what's your, what are your Newtons? It's your, your Newtons, your teeth, your Newton Eve, your teeth. Newton Eve, yes, absolutely. We'll come on, we'll got that one in. It's very limited, that one. The Newtons. Best place to visit in Greater Manchester for somebody that's not been before? Oh, the, without a doubt, Media City. Great place. It's always, it's always windy, though. That's the only downside of Media City. But also, the Lowry's there, and we were the first ever wedding in the compass room at the Lowry. So oh, I, yeah. I love visiting Media oh. City because it's such a wealth of, I mean, you can see the Blue Peter Garden, obviously, yeah. very important for those badges. Um, and it's an amazing place, Media City. So yeah, I'd wholly recommend you go and spend the day at Media City. Great shout. Most inspirational Mancunian? Can I have two? I've got two inspirational Mancunians. I've got, a, I'm all about diversity. So I've got a male and a female. So uh, my male is Tony Wilson as much as it slightly agrees me to say it because we did used to spend the majority of our time disagreeing about pretty much everything um but on reflection he was right about quite a lot of things <laughs> and uh he has inspired me to do what i i do but my female is a little known woman called margaret ashton who was the very first councillor for Manchester's female councillor for Manchester City Council. Um, She was born in Withington. She was a councillor in the sort of 1920s, in between the wars. Not only did she do a whole ton of brilliant stuff, but she was like me. I think that um, she stood up for what she believed in, whether the timing of that was right, whether people were with her. And actually that resulted in Manchester Council removing all... uh, She got got asked to leave the council because of her views on the war in particular. And it wasn't until the 80s that she was reinstated and is now Margaret Ashton Close in Moston and a college called Margaret Ashton named after her, recognising her achievements. But I feel a real affinity with her because like I, said, I sometimes feel like I'm out of sync with the rest of the, the world and the rest of the thinking. And I feel like Margaret Ashton had that experience too. Such a great story. What do you order at the chippy? Ah, chips, peas and gravy, always. <laughs> and what legacy do you want to leave Manchester? I want to leave Manchester the legacy of music and social enterprise. 
Rose. Thanks so much. Absolutely love talking to you. I hope you do make Manchester Together in One Voice an annual event because uh, I think there's a place for that in our hearts now. Thanks for joining me today. I've also decided that I want to be a social entrepreneur, so Yay! I need to spend a bit more time with you to figure out how we pivot Roland Ransfield into that kind of model. I'm completely inspired. Thank you. Wow. I tell you what, if we achieve that, Lisa, job done for this podcast. <laughs> That's brilliant. Thank you so much. Rose Marley learned to build this city from behind her grandma's sofa by being an entrepreneur with civic duty and by mastering the art of the Manchester blag. You can see Manchester together in one voice in full at togethermcr.com. My next guest is boxer Stacey Copeland, the first British woman to win Commonwealth gold in 2018. And she's now paving the way for young people in sport across Greater Manchester. This is a podcast by Roland Dransfield PR. Our mission is to build purposeful relationships in all we do. If you do want to talk to us, give us a call on the same number we've had for 24 years. 0161 236 1122.